This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Lindsay Fern to the podcast. Now, Lindsay discovered a passion for wine while backpacking through Europe and Africa in the late 1990s and after graduating from Simmons University in Boston. She has worked in restaurants all over the world, including London, England, Ibiza, Spain, Miami, Florida, and the San Francisco's Bay Area. Lindsay joined the wine team at the Inn at Little Washington in 2014 as their cellar master and has moved up the ranks and became director of wine in 2021. Hard to believe she's the only woman running a three-star Michelin restaurant's wine program in the country. Lindsay is an advanced sommelier with the Court of Masters Sommelier and the mother of two beautiful girls. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Well, now this is just an audio podcast, but for, you know, I'm seeing you on, on video and I can tell you that you are way too young to have accomplished all that (laughs) in this resume. Um, But what is even more astounding is that you are the only woman running a wine program for a three-star Michelin program in the country. How do you explain that? Um, lucky, I guess. I mean, honestly, I don't think, I think there are a lot of women out there grinding and learning and, you know, running programs. I just happen to have the luck of, um, being at this amazing place and, and, uh, you know, being tapped to take over the wine program. Now, do you think that women in the wine industry in general, and maybe even in the wine director programs specifically, uh, have to maybe work harder to prove something in, in terms of, uh, what you've seen? Yeah, I, I do think so. I no question about it. And then you layer in, you know, families. I, I don't think that there are many 25 year olds coming into the industry that can jump into, you know, a place where there's an opportunity for them. So then you get women into their thirties and then it's, you know, baby time, you kind of have to have them or not. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are faced with, do I making a decision? Do I have the kids or do I push forward in a career? Um, you know, so I think that's where it splits off quite a bit. And, see who's there. And then you couple that in with, you know, there, a lot of these places are boys clubs. Um, you know, they're, I, I don't think that they're necessarily across the board is that they think women are incapable, but there's a comfort level. Do they want to be around the boys and, you know, make jokes and do these things, or do they want to, um, you know, do something that they think is PC. I just think, it, you know, at the age group that we're in, there's a really big disparity between the way men and women talk to each other and think about things and, um, you know, where their comfort zone is. So then are you taken into the fold or are you left outside of it? I think that plays into it as well. Now, now I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this on a podcast. Uh, we'll do. <laughs> but, but having been in, in and around wine for the last 25, 30 years and, and having the pleasure of having judged a lot of wine competitions, it's my opinion and it's just an opinion. I don't have any scientific fact around this. But in my experience, women have better palates than men. Yeah. A a lot of people say that. Um, I think, you know, and again, I'll get in trouble for this too, but I think women are better sommeliers a lot of time than men based solely on the fact that we're better listeners than men. And that's the part, that's the job, you know, is listening and hearing a guest and understanding what they want. And I think that as women, we do that. And, um, and yes, as far as the tasting thing, 
Um, I, I think that there is a layer to that, not in that there is an, uh, you know, an anatomical uh, ability to be able to taste better, but just the analysis of it and the open, you know, kind of expanding your mind and, and um, you know, letting the wine speak to you. It's the same kind of thing as, as listening to what's going on there. So in my opinion, yes, I would say that. <laughs> well, I like the listening part, Lindsay, because I have to say that when I go to a restaurant, I feel much more comfortable asking for help from a, a woman's psalm than I do a man's psalm. I don't know why, but I just get the feeling that I, that women's psalms will listen to me or will at least ask me more questions. What do you think about that? I agree with you. And I think there's an ego portion of it too, that you get more with men than with women. Um, and I and I do want to say, I know an, a lot of incredible male sommeliers that are incredibly talented that I could not hold a candle to. This isn't like a massive generalization. I think it's it's just a conversation. So, um, and an overall opinion. <laughs> okay, so but, overall, do you yes. think guests should feel uh, empowered to ask psalms for help just in general? Yes, I think it's a really, um, it, it makes me sad when I see guests looking on their phone for, you know, whatever on Vivino or some nonsense to see what scores wines are getting when I'm like, hey, I'm right here. I can, I can help you out. Um, you know, so not only I know the wine I have, you know, I'm over eight years at the end. Um, so I've literally been working with some of these physical bottles for the entire eight years. So I've seen how they've, you know, progressed in age, but most importantly, the Psalms and the restaurants know the food that they're serving. So, um, I think that's something that shouldn't be slighted at all is that you have to realize, I mean, I know a lot about wine, but when I go to restaurants that have Psalms, I tell them, this is what I want to spend. Um, I kind of want, you know, one or two bottles or like a sparkling and then a red or white and a red, you know, do what you will with it because they're going to give me the best, you know, experience with the food that's in the restaurant. And that's why you're there. So um, I, I absolutely think it's important to trust the sommelier that's there and, um, you know, believe that they can help you with that portion of it. And as you know, I, I had that personal experience. I had the uh, absolute pleasure of, of dining at the end of Little Washington several weeks ago. And I got to tell you, you, you've put together an amazing, amazing list of wines. But my eyes started to kind of glaze over and cross at one point. So I turned to the your, your yeah. psalm and uh, asked for help. And she put together a perfect pairing, absolutely a perfect pairing. And we'll talk a little bit about that later in the podcast, because I do think people should drink more Riesling. We'll get to yeah. that in a moment. But um, uh, let's go back to that list that you've compiled. Pretty impressive. But I've heard you know rumors in the industry that sometimes distributors can kind of maybe strong arm restaurants. And, by, and I have personally seen allocations going more and more to uh, what I would call retail and uh, and restaurant versus uh, direct-to-consumer. I mean, champagne is just one great example that I've seen uh, that's getting harder to pick up as a consumer in the marketplace. But can you speak to I what's mean, going on in the industry? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, first thing, the, the INS list, I mean, that's, we've been open for, we're going on 44 years now. So um, I don't think any one Psalm can take credit for it. It's just been a beautiful kind of layering of people adding their mark to it. So I'm delighted to have this opportunity to make my mark on it. So we do have these incredible unicorns on that list. But uh, yeah, it, it's becoming harder and harder to get them. So, you know, without saying the big names, I'm just astounded that I'll be allocated two bottles of something 
And I'm thinking, where in the world are you putting it? If, if they're bringing it to the United States, there are 13 three-star Michelin restaurants. Of them, I believe five are Wine Spectre Grand Award winning lists. Who are you giving the rest of the bottles to? And it, it usually comes down to what else is in the book that people are spending the money on. Um, so that drives me nuts because, uh, you know, I would love to buy your $13 bottle of rosé, but it doesn't have a home here. It's not what we do. So, you know, they call it cherry picking and all these other things. Yes, it's cherry picking, but that's that's what our list is, uh, you know, we're striving to have is just a, a whole bunch of cherries in that basket. Um, and it doesn't matter the cost of it. It's just as long as it's really good because people are coming to our restaurant to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. And some people will have saved years to come because it's, you know, it's a large expense and I want to give them something special and have a story that goes with it and have, um, you know, some meaning to it uh, because you can get, you know, a $12 bottle of Pinot Grigio every night of the week and have it at home. So if this is going to re resonate and you're going to remember it forever, it's got to be special. So anyway, that's, that's my take on why. And not only that, I do have one more. <laughs> you know, we have five sommeliers on the floor every night that are educated, that know about the wines and know the history of the wines. So, you know, we can share that story and can explain to them, you know, what it means. So why they'd want to put it somewhere else where it's going to sit on a retail shop, you know, and someone's going to buy it for whatever and not appreciate it. It just, it drives me bananas um, or not age it properly. All these other things, I, I would hope they would want it in the hands of professionals that could, you know, uh, you know, hold it in the reverence that it deserves. Because as you know, visiting vineyards, how much work goes into actually making that bottle of wine, you know, the farming aspect of it um, and bringing that in and, and treating it with the utmost care and and uh, sitting on it for however many years before they decide to release it and then just to have it go plunk into a retail store um, or, you know, a country club where some guy's going to buy it and not have any idea what he's doing with it just because it's a price point thing. But that's that's my two cents. Well, so all, they attach all those other things to it. Well, I find it interesting that you kind of get strong armed is what it's actually sounding like is like, if you buy our lower end or more popular things, yeah, maybe we'll throw a few extra bottles your way. That's uh, it, I'm so frustrated with, you know, the whole distributor aspect of it in the U S because they're pushing numbers, they're pushing cases. So they need to push those cases out. And so they know what you want. They know what's going to sell on its own and they hold it hostage on you, you know? But what's bummer. fascinating, Lindsay, is that they know where those different bottles will sell. So why would I not, and I'm just making this up as a distributor, why would I not go to a restaurant or country club and sell that rosé, knowing that they're not going to want those two special bottles of X, whatever that may be. And then I have that additional allocation that I can place in a restaurant where I know it's going to get the attention and reverence it deserves. I, I I just don't understand the thinking. I, I don't either. I really don't. So I'm not missing anything. It's just, it is what it is. Yep. They're just, they're, they're moving numbers. It's a numbers game. I worked in distribution for a short period of time when my kids were really small because it's a, it's a great schedule. It's flexible. You go see people as you need to. And, um, it, but it's just, your phone starts blowing it up at six in the morning with direct, you know, area managers telling you what numbers you need to do. And so suddenly now you're pushing 
10 cases of black box Merlot or something to, to make numbers. And not that there's anything wrong with that. We're just nothing saying wrong with it. But the point is, is when you have, well, whatever, I digress, but yes, they, they're looking to make numbers and push cases. And so, it's something that started as a, as a result of prohibition is I think, you know, the three, the three tier system. So, you know, the fact that a hundred years later, almost we're still operating with those same laws and the same rules. I think it's kind of a different game and should be taken into account. But I know that jobs hinge on it and economy and all these other things, but there should be some sort of, I don't know, reevaluation, I think. So real quick, the three-tier system that you just referred to is importer, distributor, and then, of course, retailer or restaurant. You know, those yeah. are the three tiers before it gets to me, the consumer. And, of course, along yeah. the way, there's a little bit of a markup, a little bit more of a markup, a little bit more of a markup. Absolutely. Absolutely. I go back to that point of how much the winemaker actually puts in his pocket and all those other people take pieces along the way and you pay for it. Yep. Um, now, you did mention that you have a, a bunch of Psalms on the floor at any one time at the NLL Washington, which is interesting because I have to say that I have personally experienced maybe a bit of uh, wanting of service in certain restaurants with respect to uh, wine. Now, and at both ends of the spectrum, I've, I've had amazing wine service. I, you know, for example, in a little Washington, some other restaurants in, in DC that are just outstanding. And then I kind of experienced maybe some service standards that aren't up to what maybe the restaurant standards should be. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. What's going on in the industry? I mean, I think there are so many different factors. I think COVID, obviously, um, a lot of people checked out after COVID. I mean, people that I know that worked in restaurants for years and years and years said, that's it, I'm going to be in real estate now or what other thing, because it was so extraordinarily stressful. I mean, we didn't know if it was coming back. We didn't know if we would have jobs. And as it was kind of the way, um, you know, people establish business models is that we call it a salminger where they get hired as managers and then they have some duties, which I did for a while too, when I was younger. So then it just becomes, you know, you're not getting as much of the part that you love as you are the other stuff that comes with it. So people decide, you know, no, this isn't for me anymore. So I think that's one aspect of it. Um, and then as, as I was saying, you know, people have families, it's, um, you know, as rewarding as it can be, it's really sad to leave your kids on Christmas day to go to work. Um, you know, once you get there, you love it. Cause it's uh, wonderful people that come back year after year, at least in my case. Um, but it's just, it's a bummer. So how do you justify in your head, you know, working nights and weekends and holidays when, you know, a lot of other places are, you'll make just as much money now, um, you know, working in it and working from home and you can make your own schedule again. Um, so I think that can be a part of it. And then, you know, you have all the, there's drama going off within some of the, um, you know, certification bodies, we'll call them in the wine world. Um, so I think some people are moving away, um, you know, to name, I, I guess I may as well say it, the quartermaster sommeliers. I had an incredibly positive experience. For me, it was a, a lifeline and something that was great. Um, a lot of other people didn't have that same experience. And I think as a result, they're moving toward other ways to become certified and become sommeliers. Uh, the great thing about the quartermaster sommeliers is, is it focuses on service. Um, and I think, and the other ones don't as much. So I think there's a layer to that as well. So it's great. It's great that you know all the grapes and you can talk about it and you can write a book about it or a paper about it. But when, you know, the rubber hits the road and you're in a restaurant and you have 14 tables that you need to get to, how are you going to do it? You don't learn that, um, you know, from studying out of a book, you learn it by being on the floor and, um, you know, 
going that route. So I think that's another part of it too. Right. And the, and for example, the WSET, which is another wonderful organization for uh, wine education, but really focuses more on the education aspect, not so much on the service aspect. Um, like I said, they, they it, it's great because it's great to have the knowledge and to know the things, um, but it doesn't, it, there's no exchange for what kind of training you get and being on the floor in a restaurant. So I have a question to ask you, and and I don't know if you're going to want to answer it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, everybody's going to hate me by the end of this anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> We're just going down a rabbit hole because I've experienced this recently in, in more and more restaurants, and it's really only been since the pandemic. But I've been in several restaurants lately where I've been limited to two hours at the table. Ah, I know. I've heard of this. I've not experienced it. That's crazy. What's going on? Is it a staffing issue? Is it? No, they're turning tables or trying to pull numbers and money. I mean, I don't, I know you can't say either. I don't know if it's a corporate thing or if it's, um, you know, but that's the bummer of some of these places. And what, again, what I love about the end, because chef is like, if we make money cool, but he's really there to host a party and to, you know, make it the greatest experience. He really wants it to be a life-changing experience for people. Um, and he's fortunate. He doesn't care about the money. It, it, it comes fortunately. So it's not an issue, but, um, that's not his driving force. I think a lot of other restaurants, there are investors. Um, you know, he's a his solo project. He's one guy and he is there every night of the week. So, um, but when you have investors, you have to, you know, show profits and how do you make profits? And if you have someone that comes in and, and, you know, I, I don't know if, if it's a getting an appetizer and a bottle of wine and you're there for three and a half hours, then they're angry about it because the check average is low and they're not turning the table and they need more people in and whatnot. So, um, I, it really just comes down to numbers and they're trying to make money and that's, that's what's up. We've had that experience, uh, even recently, I was with my family at a restaurant and we were right on time and everything was going smoothly, except the service was lagging a little bit. And when we got to dessert, our, I guess our two hours were up because they asked if we would care to enjoy our dessert at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> and we were literally moved off the table and, and it was just a, an awkward experience because it was nothing we did. Right. It was just a, a service or maybe even a staffing issue. Yeah. Which is a shame because, I mean, you've been to Europe and you go and you, you spend a whole day sitting around and, you know, then you have a cappuccino after and then maybe it's another glass of wine after that. But, yeah, I mean, it's a it should be a, an enjoyable experience and however long it takes. But we have people that come in and they can, you know, you just had dinner there. I'm assuming it took you probably two and a half to three hours minimum. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had people come in and be out in an hour and 15 minutes just because they eat fast and they're ready to go. So, OK, if that's how you want to wow. do it. I know. <laughs> Right. No, we were tucked um, in for the night. <laughs> but the point is, is it's, you know, once you once you get in, you kind of own that table and however long it takes you, it takes you. And I, I mean, maybe if you're in the city and someone and they're booked, they need to turn a table. So that's, you know, that could be a part of it, which is, you know, I guess great for the restaurant if that's the issue. But, um, you know, we don't, restaurants don't exist without guests. And so they're to be treated as guests, like they're a guest in your home. We literally talk about this almost every night in pre-shift is like, you know, whatever your section is, this is your home. So you treat it as if all these people are being invited into your home and you want to take care of them and you're hosting the party. So um, I think if we all looked at service that way, it would be a much better way to dine. But unfortunately, it's not. 
in a lot of places. I don't know, Lindsay. I have a, a good friend who um, has kicked me out of his house. Uh, after dinner. <laughs> no, no, no names, Jim. You know who you are. Uh, so you you mentioned Europe. So mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up another topic. In Europe, when you go to dine, usually when you're presented with the check, the gratuity or whatever is already included. It's a very European model. Now, I understand I don't have all the facts and and maybe if I hope you know a little bit more about this than I do, but I understand that Washington DC recently passed some legislation, some very interesting legislation about uh, wage and tips for servers and restaurants. Can you bring me up to speed on that? Yeah, a little bit, because we're not in D.C. proper. We're in Virginia. But essentially, um, minimum wage had been raised to $15 an hour, and that included service, whereas before it was, I think, $2.35 or something like that an hour plus tips. So when it was raised to 15, I think the idea um, was that you would still be getting tips because you never know. Some people don't tip at all. Some people tip pretty heavily, some people, whatever. So it was just to make sure that everybody got to a living wage. So now the new legislation, because again, my understanding is that it's supposed to relieve restaurant owners. So it's down to like $5.25 an hour. However, if tips coming in don't take the server up to $16 an hour, then the restaurant needs to make up for it to make sure they reach that minimum hourly wage. Um, I don't think it's great, uh, especially when they were making $15 an hour. They basically just took, you know, uh, two thirds of your paycheck away is the way that you're looking at it because... Um, you know, I, I've been in this industry since I was 19. So I've been a cocktail server. I've been a bartender, um, you know, manager and done all these different things within the restaurant. And there were days where I would go in and make nothing except for that $2 and 34 cents an hour because it was quiet. No one came in or they didn't tip or, you know, whatever. So, um, it does happen. So I understand that it's, and again, this is what pushes people out of the industry than not knowing, um, and it was a different world then too. Like I, I would, there were nights where I would walk out of work with almost a thousand dollars in my pocket and tips. And I'm like, this is like jackpot stuff, you know, and it happened often enough that it made those $0 nights, you know, work out. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people have bad feelings about it. Cause you go anywhere and someone's turning a computer around at you asking for a tip. I went to a concert a few weeks ago and bought a t-shirt and they wanted a tip. Like what? I just spent, yeah. I just spent $95 on two t-shirts for my kids and you're spinning it around and, and I, and asking me for a tip cause you handed me a t-shirt. I, I love to tip people, but that's just kind of nuts. So I think that is also really kind of burning people out on the tip idea. Who am I not tipping anymore? Um, cause everybody's asking Starbucks, they want tips. And, you know, it, it used to be in those kinds of places. It was, you know, uh, I want to do something nice for you or something kind for you. Now it's demanded. Um, and they are getting paid a better hourly wage than most servers, you know, at least in Virginia. I think here we're still 235 or 217 or two something. Yeah. So I think people are burned out on a little bit and there is no real consistency to that kind of money or those big tips. And, and Wow. Maybe I should start selling T-shirts. But I know. <laughs> I had the same experience, though. When I was in grad school, I bartended at a couple of restaurants in Georgetown. And yeah, there were days I walked out of there with, you know, 30, 40 bucks. And there were days I walked out of there with 400 in cash. And that's back in the day when 400 in cash was a lot. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But overall, I loved the industry. Absolutely loved it. And for not some weird quirk of fate, I'd probably still be in the industry. But I really miss those days. It It was a lot of fun. 
But I do want to touch the, on the on the fact that in Europe they really seem to make a living wage. You know, just they it is what it is, and maybe who knows? Maybe there'll be some legislation that comes around back in D.C. where they might consider just adding the tip in, you know, an eighteen percent gratuity, for example. Yeah. Uh, let's call it a day, which I think would be, you know. I think would be fair to the server. All right, on to a much lighter and brighter subject, and I am talking about one of my favorite wines and the wine that your psalm uh, directed me to when we had our dining experience, Riesling. Yes. I think everybody should drink more Riesling. I do as well. I'm such a big fan. It's such a delightful food wine. And of course you have the different, you know, uh, classification levels. So you've got the, the, the dryers into the sweeters, uh, sweeter, and it, just depending on where you want to go. But I think people have this poor conception of it, of it being like blue nun or something where it's just cloyingly sweet and unbalanced, but there's the beautiful acidity to them, beautiful minerality to them. And you pick the sweetness level and they're just phenomenal with food. They pick up, you know, if there's fruit in a dish or vegetable in a dish, um, you know, the acidity cuts through richer sauces. Um, I find them stunning and I wish people would also realize that a lot of them probably have less residual sugar than, you know, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. But for some reason, people think that Napa Cab is dry. Um, not that they're not wonderful, but um, I think people need to recalibrate their brain on, you know, sweet and whether it's good or bad or, or what. But those wines are delicious. And American palate is geared towards sweetness anyway. I mean, you know, everybody grew up drinking soda and Kool-Aid and lemonade and sweet tea and all these different things, especially in the South. Um, so when they turn their noses up at Riesling, I'm always just, my mind's blown because I think it's just such a perfect wine for food and, you know, meat or, you know, salads or otherwise. Um, so I think everyone should drink them. And, you know, for the most part, I, don't, I can't think of any really horrific producers, even when you go to the grocery store and they're not incredibly expensive, they're still okay. They're still drinkable. Um, yeah. We are in a I think, but I think they're just delicious and you should explore them more. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing a lot more domestic production on Riesling. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's not all just German and Alsace. You know, we, we're getting a lot more uh, creative Rieslings here in the United States that are delicious. No question about it. Yeah. And I know we're recording the, this podcast a few days before Thanksgiving. It's going to air, uh, unfortunately, after Thanksgiving. But Riesling and Thanksgiving table, just it's a match made for each yep. other. I can't agree more. I can't think of anything on the on my Thanksgiving table that Riesling's not a great match for. And I got to find this T-shirt. Our, our dear mutual friend, Eric Siegelbaum, has this T-shirt that says, if you don't drink Riesling, you're an effing idiot. <laughs> it doesn't say effing. <laughs> T-shirts. I haven't seen that one yet, but yeah, that is good. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say effing, but this is a family show, so we can't uh, can't spell that one out. Um, and speaking of Rieslings, a lot of times those are coming from smaller producers. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of get your take on what you think about maybe buying more wine from smaller producers. I think oftentimes we overlook some of the smaller producers because we get label recognition. Yep. Yeah, label recognition is a big part of it. And this can go back to our talking to your psalm thing. I mean, I don't know all of them, certainly. One of my psalms who just came from New York, we're talking, and she mentioned one from the Sierra Foothills that I'd never heard of. And she was like, it's killer. You got to get it. 
So we're bringing it in now to taste. And this is something that we get excited about. I just came back from South Africa and I was in Cape Town and uh, uh, there's a, a master of wine there, Richard Kershaw, making stunning wines. Incredible. I'd never heard of them before. So I really get excited about it. Um, so again, engage with your sommelier because they can turn you on to things like this and normally, and they're often a lower price point as well. So, you know, you're getting a, a, the bang for the buck, I think in these cases, and you're supporting these smaller wineries. Um, you know, we keep talking about, uh, you know, how much work it is to put, you know, wine into a bottle and then, you know, going through all these different, you know, taxations and what have you to get the wine into a guest's hands. So um, this is a great example of keeping those smaller guys alive and not letting them get bought out by the the bigger corporations and losing out to that artisanal factor. Because there's certainly something to be said for someone who's tending grapes or tending to the vines and bringing the grapes in themselves during harvest and then making the wine as opposed to the guy who's buying the fruit and trying to push numbers and putting it through a machine to see what the bricks levels are and kind of takes away from that, you know, real passion and soul and not that some of these wines aren't beautiful, like nicely made wines. Um, in fact, actually to go back a specific story, the last night I was in Cape town, we went out to dinner with one of the, um, the wineries that hosted us and, uh, their winemaker picked a few different bottles on the table and we were talking about it. And she was like, well, what do you think of this one? And I said, it's good. I said, it's very good. And she said, do you love it? Do you hate it? I said, it's good. That's all I'm going to say about it. She said, well, what's wrong with it? I said, nothing's wrong with it. It's actually perfect. Like tannin levels, perfect acid levels, perfect. The fruit is nice. It has has a nice nose. It's like it has no soul. Like you can just tell it has no soul. There's nothing really that's resonating with me. I'll, I'll forget about this wine is really what it comes down to because it's so perfectly made, you know, um, if that makes any sense. So, and, and this is again, why, you know, I, I love old world wines because there is certainly that vintage variation and there's, um, you know, it, it has a personality to it and those vineyards have personalities. I, I think there's just a lot to be said for that. You know, that's really interesting that you say that it has no soul. Sometimes I will say this wine speaks to me. Yes, exactly. You connect or with it. Has a soul. You connect with it. There's something, I don't know, as je ne sais quoi, say what you will. It, but there are wines that I will literally stop what mm -hmm. I'm doing and look at the wine and say, this wine has soul. This wine speaks to me. And so I do. I understand exactly what you're saying. A lot of people listening to the podcast may be thinking, what are they talking about? <laughs> but if you taste enough wine, there are certain wines that stand out to you and you kind of get it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a specific example of a Chateauneuf de Pop I had recently that literally made me just stop what I was doing and look at this wine and, and think, wow, what did they do? How did they make this wine? What went into it? And, yeah. um, you know, and, and circling back to the uh, El Dorado uh, wine region in the Sierra foothills, about two years ago, I guess I did a podcast on Sierra foothills. I really need to go back and revisit that, uh, that region. They're making some stunning wines. Yes, I agree with you. And, um, you know, we have such a large program and I'm all over the world and I'm fighting for allocations all the time that when something like that pops up, I'm like, oh my gosh, this year foothill, I forgot, you know? So um, uh, it's why I love this industry. I'm never going to stop learning. I'm never going to know everything about everything. And I'm always going to circle back and there's going to be something new and exciting happening in a region. So um, it's a really cool part of the job, but yeah, I'm with you on exploring that area a little more. It's been a while for me too. Well, Lindsay, with that, we're coming up to my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we try to feature one or two wines at the end of the podcast that our guests are really uh, excited about. And I understand that you've opened up something for tonight's dinner that I would love for you to share with our audience. Yes. So um, I, uh, the in a little Washington is in Washington, Virginia, which is about an hour and a half south of Washington, D.C. Um, and I live about a half an hour from there in the town of Culpeper and just due south of us is uh, Monticello region. Um, so I wanted to uh, break out the Barbersville Vineyards Nebbiolo. I've got a 2014 vintage here. Um, so this is uh, Barbersville Winery is owned by the Zonin family, which is obviously an Italian family based in the Veneto. And uh, they bought property here in 1976 and the inn opened in 78. So we've always we've had a long standing relationship with them as we've really grown together um, through you know those decades. And Luca Pacina, their winemaker, is just a wonderful man. He's so generous uh, with information and uh, knowledge. And uh, he's just a great winemaker. I love these wines. They drink like old world wines, even though we're a relatively warm area. Um, you know, the, he's got his octagon, which is his Bordeaux style blend, which is what I, if I'm not mistaken, really kind of put Barbersville in the, yep. in the map for, for the wine world. Um, but I've drunk back to, you know, the early two thousands and late nineties and they're just, they're gorgeous. They're just getting better and better and better. And they drink like old Bordeaux. Um, obviously being an Italian family, they put some Nebbiolo in, um, and same thing. I'm finding these, you know, you're not going to mistake it for Barolo, but you're getting those, the tannin, you're getting that acid, you're getting this, this beautiful savory note with them. Um, and those are aging extraordinarily well. So it's cold and rainy here tonight. And so I'm making a lasagna, so a little comfort food. So I thought that would be nice to drink with it. Um, but you know, whenever I can promote something that's local to the area, I love to, because I think we're number five, uh, for wine producing, uh, in, in the United States. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential here. I'm really excited. I've been, I've lived in Virginia since 2012 and just over the last 10 years to see where it's come. Uh, it's nice to know that we're still growing and getting better and better and better every year. I second that. I got to tell you, I've always been a fan of Barbersville, but in the last 10 years, I've really seen Virginia wines start to come into their own. And it's really nice uh, that you're promoting them both here on the podcast and also at the NLL Washington. Oh. And I've got, I mean, I, I can't let you leave without asking you one more question, Lindsay. Is there one or two special wines at the end that if somebody's coming in and the meal is just mind blowing? I mean, it just everything from the level of service and the food and the attention to detail. Mm -hmm. But if if I'm sitting down and I just am looking for, you know what? And I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a little easy for you. Let's let's say the moderately priced wine on the list and then a splurge wine. Do you do you have a couple yeah. that you're thinking about? Um, so I just mentioned it because it's fresh and I was just there on um, the Kershaw wines from South Africa. So um, Richard Kershaw, I had lunch with him and he kind of went through his process. He's been making wines in the elegant area uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, he's British himself, uh, but he really geeked out pretty hard. And we were talking about clones and different Coopers and how he's, you know, done this intense study of how these, you know, uh, different vines work with these different Coopers and uh, just very cool. But I've Elegant's a cooler region in South Africa, if not the coolest. I think that, you know, if you're going to do your outlier thing, uh, and this goes back to my study days. However, um, they drink like white burgundy. So I was pretty astounded that at a third of the price of white burgundy, I could taste this wine and it had this long finish and 
all those beautiful, it's, it's 2017 that we're carrying right now. It's the, he calls it the deconstructed, um, but you're getting those kind of marshmallow and toffee notes from the aging and, but still bright acidity and citrus and tart apple. Um, our food is extraordinary. I think with white burgundy, I think it's just a you know, an easy match because chef is such a Francophile and, uh, you know, a lot of the saucing and technique that he uses is, is based in, in uh, French cooking. So I think that's one that's moderately priced that I'm excited about. And uh, I love to share because I don't think anyone that tasted it blind would think it was anything other than Pelini Montrachet. And truly, I think that's what people would guess it was. So um, that makes me happy because I'm a big white burgundy fan. So Chardonnay from South Africa. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm, uh, I am. I am intrigued. Yes. Um, and then if I was going to spend a whole bunch of money, that's really hard. Yeah. Uh, I'm having dinner with Jeff Bezos. He's picking up the tab. <laughs> what am I, uh, what am I getting? I mean, I have to go classic. I have to go to um, Domaine Romani Conti. Uh, we have quite a few of them. I, for the first time I got to go to uh, and taste them side by side, all the different vineyards um, because I've tasted them as one-offs and can certainly appreciate them. And then you read about it and, um, but to taste them side by side really is what got it into my brain and it resonated with me. And again, picking a favorite is really hard, but I, I think probably the Romani Simbabon, the elegance of it and the ageability of it and the, you know, layered complexity that you get um, is unparalleled. It really is beautiful, beautiful wine. Well, the next time Bezos uh, invites me to dinner, I'm going to insist okay. on that wine. Uh, okay. Domain Romani Conti, many people know it as DRC uh, from the Burgundy region of, of France. And they are spectacular wines. Absolutely. And so are you, Lindsay, in the time that you've spent with me. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. This time has just flown by. I want to tell you that it's been just a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well. Drink well.